Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today we welcome David Abalafia, Emeritus Professor of Mediterranean History at the University of Cambridge and author of The Boundless Sea, A Human History of the Oceans, published by Alan Lane, which won this year's Wolfson History Prize. Welcome, David, and congratulations. The Boundless Sea is a book on a vast scale. It's, it's hugely ambitious, and we get a real sense of that scale and ambition uh, from the opening chapters, when it looks at one of the most extraordinary human achievements which is the peopling of the pacific the peopling of the pacific is uh, actually surprisingly the place to begin such a book because it takes us back very very many millennia uh, and it's the history of people actually setting out across an enormous expanse of sea uh, without a sort of continental edge to speak of uh, but what they've really got is this enormous array of islands. And over many millennia, they settled these islands. It wasn't a quick process at all. I mean, they only reached New Zealand around AD 1300. Um, but during this process, what you find is the spread of a sort of common culture. So, um, So it's this process of moving from island to island, working out how these people managed to work out that there was land beyond the horizon. And this, this involved a mastery of navigation, which was quite phenomenal. And I have to say my favorite story in the book is the story of an English sea captain who lost his compass uh, on a ship where the sailors were Polynesian. So this would be, what, late 18th century. And he was really terrified by this because he was trying to get to an island. And he said, well, we'll never get there. And his sailors said, don't worry, Captain, we'll get you there. And they did. Um, and so when they arrived at Tahiti, he said, but how did you know it was here? To which they gave the simple answer, but it's always been here. So they had this sort of knowledge of the Pacific which was quite phenomenal, which involved uh, an ability to sort of read the waves, read the sky. And then beyond that, another question arises. Right, they could do all of this, but why did they do it? Is it to do with um, land exhaustion? So they're searching out new lands, which is something bound up perhaps with climatic change. Maybe I suggest this at one point, there might be a religious dimension to this, the constant movement eastwards as far as Easter Island. So there are lots of mysteries still associated with this. And some of the research that's been done has been very exciting because it's involved this experimental archaeology, which has, uh, has meant people have sort of built the right sorts of ships, the ships that would have been used centuries ago by the Polynesians, uh, and have, have tried to see 
you know how how it's possible to to, to master the uh, um, navigation of these waters in in these apparently extremely difficult conditions. And when we're talking about um, the Pacific here, there's a, essentially a, a vast triangle here that's focused on Hawaii, uh, Rapa Nui, which is Easter Island, of course, and, and what we now know as New Zealand. So just to look on a map, you get a sense of that enormous scale. And so enormous, so impressive is this achievement that even NASA uh, studied it and when they, when they were talking about moon landings and space exploration. It, it is an ex absolutely extraordinary achievement. Uh, and what is also very extraordinary about it is the way that it was remembered by the Polynesian people. So if we want to reconstruct the settlement of Hawaii and in particular New Zealand, we have these amazing narratives which describe the journeys of the ancestors of, in the case of New Zealand, the modern Maori population. Uh, and there's a lot of legendary material bound up with it. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there is an extraordinary degree of, of, well, as far as we can tell, accuracy about the generations that have passed. And this has enabled people to try to work out at what period of time all of this was happening. As I said, it's actually quite recent. It's only about 700 years ago that they reached New Zealand. We then move on because this is essentially uh, a story, a human history of three oceans in particular, uh, the Pacific, but then there's also the Indian Ocean. And what struck me about that uh, were parallels uh, between your previous work on the Mediterranean, because this is a more enclosed space uh, in a way, um, certainly compared to the Pacific. But also it gets us away from the idea, which is a very European idea of discovery, uh, away from exploration and more towards one of the primary um, subjects, which is trade. We're basically seeing the agency of, of merchants essentially being these who advance these extraordinary geographical achievements? I really wanted in the book to emphasize the role of trade. The subtitle of the book, A Human History of the Oceans, that emphasizes that it's actually about how people have related to the oceans in terms of crossing the sea. That's that's the major theme. And you know, who's been crossing the sea? We hear about the explorers, you're absolutely right. Um, but these are very often sort of one-off expeditions. Following on from that, there is the very interesting question how these lands are sort of exploited. Um, and in the case of the Indian Ocean, what is really fascinating is we're not dealing with um, the exploitation of lands which are ripe for conquest, as, as, as we find in the Americas, Australia, or whatever. We're dealing with contact between highly developed civilizations which. Um, found it easiest to make contact by maritime routes. So I'm talking, for instance, about the very great importance of the Silk Route, not the Silk Road that we always hear about that crosses Eurasia over land, which was cumbersome, which was constantly interrupted by warfare, which doesn't really have a continuous existence. But what was alive over a great many centuries was the maritime 
silk route, which took goods all the way from China right up into the Red Sea, right up into Egypt, North Africa, the Islamic world, so that you have, for instance, in Old Cairo, Fustat, which um, is where the, a lot of the merchants lived, particularly the Jewish merchants in the Middle Ages on the edge of Cairo, 700,000 pieces of Chinese pottery have been excavated so far, and that must be a tiny fragment of the amount that was actually arriving. So this was a place of constant exchange, goods going back and forth, and that goes back. What I try to show is that it goes right back to the earliest civilizations, the Sumerians in what is now Iraq, and the Indus Valley people, and who were trading with one another around 2000 BC. And one of the other things that I was I was surprised by, there's um, there's there's strong elements and, and common elements of myth busting in this book, um, was that Japan, which we often think of as isolated from European perspective, was not really isolated at all, um, that it had strong contacts with China and various other uh, parts of um, the Indian Ocean. Yeah, in looking at the Indian Ocean, uh, it's very important to bring in those areas of the Western Pacific, which were in constant sort of commercial dialogue, political dialogue, with, uh, with the Indian Ocean uh, and with China. That, there's a sort of continuum that stretches all the way from Japan and Korea down the coast of China into the Indian Ocean itself through the South China Sea. Uh, and that means that those Pacific borders of the Indian Ocean, the, 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 the Far East, doesn't really belong to that Pacific world we were discussing. Um, Japan and China are looking in a very different direction. And the Japanese, certainly, I mean, they owed an enormous amount, not just to the Chinese culturally, but also to the Koreans, so that we have the arrival from China and Korea of Buddhism. Uh, we have a very, very active trade in products like silk uh, and paper, paper which the Chinese were very famous for. The Japanese made their own paper. And underlying all of this, an absolutely fascinating story about the movement of bullion, the amount of bullion that was just hoovered up by the Japanese economy from China, which produced these copper coins, we call them cash, which is actually a Portuguese rather than a Chinese word. Um, phenomenal, millions and millions of them in, in strings. They were stringed together with holes through the middle being exported to Japan across the medieval period. And it continues beyond that. I mean, there is a period of closure uh, after the Portuguese were expelled and only the Dutch were allowed into the trade of Japan through this tiny little base, uh, an artificial island in Nagasaki. But otherwise, Japan has actually, really the whole Japanese culture has been very much formed by these contacts the outside world. And the other um, ocean, the third of these great oceans that you cover, is of course the Atlantic. Um, but I think it's significant. I don't think it's until we're halfway through this book of a thousand pages that we reach um, that, um, that date that everyone knows, 1492. Um, and it's a very different um, experience, largely due, due to a very different um, 
geography that we have in the Atlantic, because what, what you're talking about there seems to be, again, we're talking about trade in ivory, gold, and of course, um, slaves. But the development of access to uh, the Atlantic, as you've, as you've described in history today, actually was um, something you called island hopping. Yes, the, uh, the, the discovery of the Atlantic happened much, much later than the discovery of the Pacific and indeed the Indian Ocean. Uh, it's true we have these Norsemen, people call them Vikings, but they're not warriors going out to raid other people, obviously, who reached as far as Greenland, where they remained for about 400 years, maybe more than that, uh, throughout the Middle Ages. And we have some of them turning up in America. Um, it's even been suggested recently they got as far south as Yucatan in uh, in Central America where the Maya civilization was. I don't believe that for a moment actually but nonetheless um, there was that prim that primeval contact if you like but it didn't really have any legacy and if we're actually looking for the development of sort of regular contact with the Atlantic space it really begins with the Portuguese in the 15th century and the colonization of islands which were up to that point uninhabited, Madeira, the Azores, Cape Verde, and beyond that, I mean, other islands as well, uh, where they were able to set up sugar industry, dairy industry, and also a base for the export of West African slaves, first of all, towards Europe, where there was considerable demand in the 15th century because of the labor shortages that had followed the extermination of half the European population during the Black Death. And then with the discovery of the Americas, demand for slaves as labor in the Americas. So these places are extraordinarily important. And something which struck me very forcibly was how these Portuguese islands, which barely figure on maps, actually in uh, in the maps of the period, if you go back to 15th, 16th century maps, they often appear enormously enlarged, which really reflects their significance. They were seen as absolutely crucial stopping points uh, on the way to other destinations. This continued across time. The Cape Verde Islands became major coaling stations in the late 19th century and Mindelo in the Cape Verde Islands was one of the biggest coaling stations in the world. Um, so it's quite interesting, it's sort of, by looking at the world from this maritime perspective, you really sort of reconfigure which are the important places, and sometimes surprisingly small, apparently insignificant places become extremely important. I thought one of the, um, one of many uh, passages in the, um in the book that um, I found quite amusing was the one when Columbus is rather disappointed that he doesn't discover monsters on his travels. He, he talks about uh, people being rather beautiful, I think is, is, is the phrase he uses when he's there. He's rather taken aback because there are the expectations of what's there in this new world, although he doesn't necessarily perceive it as a new world himself. Um, and, and a real disappointment there with what is found, that it's, it rather mirrors his own world in a way, rather than being terribly exotic. 
Yes, Columbus's reaction, I mean, it's ambiguous, but Queen Isabella in Spain made it absolutely plain that they were to be treated as her free subjects and they were not to be enslaved, though the way they were treated actually was not that different. Uh, he was very much influenced by a previous set of discoveries or rediscoveries, really, of the Canary Islands, which had been visited from the mid-14th century onwards by not just the Portuguese, actually, uh, by the Catalans also from Mallorca and all sorts of other people. And uh, the population there, because there was a population, unlike Madeira, which was uninhabited, the Canaries had this native Berber population who lived in quite, I can use the word primitive, to describe, it's more to do with their conditions. I mean, we, we know a lot about their political organization and so on, which was sophisticated, but um, they had very few resources. Uh, and when Europeans encountered them the first time, they were nonplussed. And there were these two reactions. One involved seeing them as sort of talking animals, that sort of terminology appears, people who lived in a brutish way, um, not subject to any law. But then there was another view which romanticized them, uh, which went back to classical, a reading of classical sources, uh, and was much, much more positive. Uh, and extolled the sort of chivalry of their of their war leaders and so on. And so Columbus, you can see the influence of these ideas in the way that Columbus behaves towards the Tainos, the uh, native inhabitants of Cuba, Hispaniola, and Puerto Rico. Um, but then there's a negative side because he realizes that they're terribly afraid of the people they call the Caniba which is a word that reminds him of dogs. And there were these stories in Marco Polo and others, read Marco Polo, of dog-headed people who lived around the edges of the world. So he also fantasized about people who get to be known later on as cannibals. Um, he was convinced that they ate one another um, my own view is that actually they did occasionally, but um, uh, but I don't want to go into that here. It's, it's a controversial business. Um, but he actually created this sharp divide between the good Tainos, which means noble in the language of the main island, and these evil Caniba people. And it was really a very artificial distinction. So what's fascinating is that ambiguity, which was then carried across the centuries. I mean, you find it in among the English in 17th century America, this sort of sometimes a rather romantic view of the native population and sometimes an extremely hostile view. But again, uh, as you did in the Pacific and as you did in the Indian Ocean, uh, the emphasis on the Atlantic He's also on these rather forgotten figures who are essentially traders and merchants. That narrative still underlies um, that third of the great oceans as well. It's extraordinary how quickly uh, traffic across from, uh, from Seville and its outports in southern Spain, traffic across to the main island, Hispaniola, now Dominican Republic, created. It just took off within a matter of, year, of a few years, you know, dozens of ships going back and forth all the time. 
uh, and it was partly the lure of gold. Um, so there were these Spaniards settling out there and building cities on the Spanish model, and all of that involved, you know, the creation of this this transatlantic uh, trade network, which just grew and grew across the centuries. Uh, that's a very important part of what I'm talking about, you're right, and I try to carry that right through. So looking, for instance, in the years after 1776, at the early history of the United States, when places like Philadelphia and Boston and New York, a much smaller New York in those days, became centers of international trade. Once these places had broken free of British rule, they began to trade as far afield as China, sending ships round the bottom of Africa all the way to, to China and trying to edge into the trade in porcelain and silk and all these things. It's, it's one of the great constants. What's interesting about the trade of the Atlantic is something which is a theme, particularly of the second half of the book, that although the book begins with this division, has to, discussing the three major oceans separately, after 1492 and after 1497, Vasco da Gama set out on his voyage from Portugal to India. We're really dealing with the way in which the three great oceans interact. And actually the Arctic Ocean also comes into this. So um, if you think of the Portuguese, they were going out of the Atlantic into the Indian Ocean. So you have these links across the three oceans, and you can no longer really just talk about them individually as separate spaces, which historians have tended to do, um, and sometimes they've forgotten that there's a bigger picture than that. It's a big enough picture as it is. And slavery, of course, is is central to that um, Atlantic trade as well. Slavery is uh, absolutely at the centre of that trade, and particularly with the development of the sugar industry. Tobacco also, to some extent later on, of course, in the United States. But if you go back to the origins of the sugar industry, and you actually think about how sugar was produced, then you begin to understand why this demand for slaves took off so much in the 15th and 16th centuries. Um, the production of sugar very labor intensive, the conditions under which sugar, the, the, the stocks were boiled and boiled and boiled, horrendous conditions to work in. Interestingly, at the very beginning, um, it seems that free labor was used in Madeira, but not surprisingly, the slaves were sort of put into that uh, industry later on and they became the, the sort of, if you like, natural labor force as it was seen at the time to exploit. Um, and no, it's, it's a horrendous story. Um, it's a story which involves collaboration across the Atlantic, we have to remember that, uh, the way in which bases were established by Portuguese and others along the coast of West Africa to do deals with West African rulers. And this sort of generated that so-called triangular trade, so goods then being sent back to Europe. Uh, from the new world. And you finish at the end with um, a rather unusual statement. I think it says that um, you come right up to the present day. You began 
I think 176,000 BC, I think is the date given, which is an awful long time ago. I think we can all say that. And you come up to um, uh, the present day and you make the claim that ocean history is coming to an end. Uh, and I wondered what you meant by that. What I was thinking of was that some of the familiar ways in which people have engaged with the ocean um, no longer exist. And there are really two categories here. The first of them is passenger traffic across the ocean, which particularly in the 19th century, in the coming of the steamship, took off on a massive scale, migrants to America, that sort of thing. But uh, ships of that sort of ship has been completely transformed into cruise ships. The cruise industry has taken off. Uh, and uh, if we want to get from place to place, uh, across long distances, we take an aeroplane. I mean, whether that will continue in the post-COVID-19 era is, of course, a moot question. Um, but the more important way in which ocean history has been transformed and in a certain sense has come to a stop is uh, the development of containerization. And this is something which began actually quite soon after the Second World War, but uh, but now it is absolutely standard. Uh, and given that 90% of world trade is conducted by sea, according to the figures that that are generally quoted, and the vast majority of that by container, and then you have to sort of think about the process that's involved. So the way I like to look at this is, let's say that you're loading goods in Chicago and sending them to Warsaw. Uh, now, Chicago, I suppose it is a sort of port, but uh, forget about the river system. The goods are then going to be sent overland to one of the major ports on the coast of the United States. Um, but when they reach that port, they will be, they'll be checked by customs and so on. But the containers basically remain sealed. Uh, everything is done by machines. You no longer have these longshoremen and other people loading and unloading ships, packing everything very carefully into the hold of ships. It's all pre-packaged and the machine just takes over. Very few people laboring on the quayside. And the same will happen when the ship reaches Rotterdam or wherever it is, Hamburg, wherever, uh, the goods will be taken off and immediately transported overland into Poland or, or wherever. So what this means is that the whole character of ports has changed dramatically. And if you compare that with the sorts of ports that I talk about in this book or in my earlier book on the Mediterranean, where you have the living together of all sorts of different ethnic groups, trading communities, where you have all these different trading groups living side by side, interacting, not always in a very positive way, but, but by and large, uh, that sort of world has completely disappeared. And ports are now machines. Whereas in the past, ports were communities of people. So that's where human history ends. The human history of the ocean. It's no longer a human history. It's a mechanised. It's a mechanised process where the largest container ships. I have a picture of what was three years ago the largest container ship in the world. But I'm now. I read the other day in the paper that something even larger has now been launched. It can take something like 19,000 containers. You think how big these containers are. It's just absolutely astonishing. And I ask myself whether 
maybe on one Chinese ship containing sort of, let's say, 15,000 containers, that the goods being carried might be equal to the total amount of goods uh, carried across the Indian Ocean in, let's say, the whole of the 15th century or something like that. The scale is just staggering. Well, that's extraordinary. But um, the scale of the boundless sea is pretty staggering. And um, thank you, David, for um, giving us a taste of it, at least. But it's um, I highly recommend uh, The Boundless Sea. It's one of the most um, enthralling books, history books that I've read for a long, long time. And um, despite um, that it's a thousand pages or so, it, it, it it's reads remarkably easily, at least to me anyway, and um, it's thoroughly deserving of all the plaudits it's got. So thank you, David, and um, congratulations again. Thank you.